I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Justice. So there's a lot of things that I wanted to talk about today. I think I'm going to start with some school safety and security things. Now, before you say, oh, school safety and security, this really goes across across the spectrum of safety and security for all of us. You know, the pandemic has increased the amount of violence that we see in our schools almost double. In 2021 or 2022, between those two years, we saw the number of actual real school shootings, you know, not, that's not gangbangers running across a parking lot fighting it out or criminals running past the school and doing something, but actually a, a student or someone attacking the school itself, shooting inside the school, rose almost doubled. There used to be between 15 and, uh, 15 and 30, and in 21, 22, there were almost 60 or 61 uh, active shooter incidents. This year, it's been a little bit quieter. But as we move forward, we can anticipate that these these numbers aren't going to change. We haven't addressed the problem. As many of you know, I conduct threat assessments on schools, businesses, religious facilities, summer camps, movie theaters, warehouses. Any place people gather is at risk of this kind of behavior of an active shooter, of someone actively pursuing victims and coming after them. And we, we have all different examples of this. You know, we have schools. And recently in Perry, uh, Iowa, we had a young man uh, attack classmates, killed one, shot a principal who apparently was very brave and stood in front of the shooter to protect students, which is hoorah. That's what we want, right? Um, and for my military friends, I don't mean to, uh, you know, uh, take your, your saying, but I think that's a great saying, hoorah, because uh, he did a good thing. But the reality is these things are not going to stop. They're not stopping because we don't have the mental health component in place that we need to have in place. It is still a, a crazy time. People don't like to talk about uh, mental health issues. They have uh, great problems with it. And I think we, we need to understand that is the one way we're going to do this. So training everyone, everyone, businesses, schools, everybody needs to be trained and how to identify potentially dangerous people before they attack us. Now, the problem that we have in lots of places, especially businesses, the statistic is I think there's 69% of businesses do little or nothing uh, in the way of active shooter. And we talked about this recently, right? They, they make you watch a video. Uh, a friend of mine worked for the government. He was a professional in the government. And basically, they had to watch a video on active shooters. And they could be good or bad. But the reality is we are not prepared. So in Perry, Iowa, we have this individual. Now, I don't have all the facts, so I don't like to make assertions that I don't know about. But there is some information in the reporting, and we haven't had it all, which tells me there's probably more to it than what we've been told, that the shooter may be someone who is having uh, gender identity problems. Now, the stories that popped out is, oh, the last four school shooters were all uh, transgender people. And we know that in some cases that is true, 
but not in all cases. And we can't say that because someone is transgender, they're going to shoot up the school. That's, that's not an appropriate connection. What I think it points to is uh, mental health problems, okay? So people who have these mental health problems that want to shoot up a school may also have other mental health problems, confusions, anxieties, all those kind of things. But in, in Perry, uh, Iowa, we haven't heard about the shooter, and there is indications that he may be a trans individual or she might be. I, I don't want to misgender. I just don't know whether it's a he turned she or a she turned he. I don't know. Uh, we'll get more information, I suppose, as time goes by. But what we need to know about these incidents is that we have to be prepared. And I, I write articles, I, I do webinars, I do presentations, I do training, I do all of this. And there are still many of you, how many workplaces where you work, do they actually do live drills? Do they train you what to do, where to go, where to hide, how to protect yourself if you had to? They don't. And it's frustrating for me because I see these things all the time. And I, I, I beat the drum and I say, please, you know, when you think about it, some of the things that I hear are, well, it's very expensive to have you come in, Lieutenant Joe, and do all this. And that. Well, it's not that expensive. And the reality is, if something happens in your school, your business, your religious facility, your summer camp where somebody comes in and does something, and you did not get a threat assessment, you did not have uh, your staff or your, your, your students or whoever you have there trained in how to respond, the checks you're going to write are going to be multiple, multiple, multiple times what it would cost to have me come in and take a look at your place and find out your security gaps and help you close them. I mean, multiples of thousands and thousands of dollars. So I understand that, you know, money is tight and businesses have to do the right thing, but school children cannot learn if they're in fear. They have to be safe. Now, these kids all know about school shooters. They all know that people are problematic. They all know that kids say things and no, nobody responds to it properly. So I'm making that point. You should go and ask your school, what do you do to protect my children? Ask your business. Gee, what are you doing to protect all of us here or any place that people gather? What do we do? Do we actually do things or do we just kind of talk about it? Because there's nothing, nothing more uh, mentally debilitating than being unprepared for something traumatic like that to happen. A shooter shows up at your workplace and starts laying down uh, gunfire and you have never thought about it. You have never prepared yourself. You have never gotten ready to what you would do. You're probably going to be victimized. And that's just, a, that's as real and as straight out to you as I can tell you to be. So make sure whether it's me or somebody else, make sure you get some training, get a threat assessment, have behavioral uh, threat assessments on the people who work there. You know, people complain, well, this guy, he's always, he's always talking stuff that sounds scary. Well, that's not appropriate in the workplace. You know, somebody that's talking about guns or talking about hurting people or hurting the management, that is a threat. You have to get that assessed and then action has to be taken to protect everybody. So that, that's something we have, to, we have to keep in mind. And I wanted to cover that because Perry, Iowa was, was recent. You know, first day back from the winter break. Historically now, as we move into the spring, now this is not fear-mongering, this is looking at statistics. As we move into the spring, there, are, there seem to be many of these kind of incidents taking place. 
So we have to be prepared, aware and prepared. That's what Lieutenant Joe tells you all the time. Be aware and prepared to make sure you can respond. And springtime uh, seems to be a time when, if you go back and look, uh, there were quite a few of these kind of incidents. So make sure you're ready. Go talk to the people that are responsible for everyone's safety. And make sure they do the right thing. All right, so um, speaking of being responsible, we, we've seen recently, I think a pretty big breach of trust between all of us and our government has taken place. Now, it could be incompetence, as I've said before, or it could be purposeful, or it could be something else. So our, our Secretary of Defense, uh, General Austin, had a health-related issue. Okay, lots of people have health-related issues. Sometimes you go to a doctor. Sometimes you got to go to the hospital and get some kind of care. That's absolutely legitimate. But apparently he had some kind of an issue. And what's being reported, because again, uh, they're trying to protect the administration, so they're limited in the reporting. He had some kind of uh, initially, I guess, a, uh, a elective procedure. Okay, lots of people do that. You know, you want to get a wart taken off. You want to get an MRI. You want to, you know, get some kind of a colonoscopy or something. And you go do that. It's an elective procedure. And he went to do that. Good, legitimate. He has every right to do that, and he should. He should stay healthy. He's a, he's a human being, should be healthy. And he's also the Secretary of Defense. He has to stay healthy. But apparently he went in, and there was some kind of follow-up where, and we don't know what it is, but it put him in a hospital, and he was in, I think it was in intensive care. I could be wrong about that, but I thought I heard he was in intensive care. Therefore, he was unable to execute his duties. Now, that's okay. We have provisions in how things work, right? Lieutenant Joe is in charge of, of, uh, of this event, and now I'm sick. I'm going to hospital. Well, I tell the next person below me, hey, Sergeant Jones, I cannot execute my duties you are now in command. Now, Sergeant Jones, okay, can take over and be prepared to respond. Well, apparently, uh, General Austin, Secretary Austin, did not tell anybody. And if he did, they're not going to tell us that. But he ended up going into a hospital where he was incapacitated enough that he could not perform his duties. And he did not tell anyone. Now, here's where the breach of trust is. This this, this man is the Secretary of Defense for the United States of America, and he's incapacitated at a time when terrorists are launching uh, attacks on our ships in the Red Sea, when our country uh, has so many people in it, we don't know who they are, including people on the terror watch list and gotaways, thousands of people here who could be potentially dangerous to all of us. We see Russia in the middle of a war. We see the Chinese uh, ready to attack Taiwan. We see all of these, these, these conflicts around the world. And our Secretary of Defense is incapacitated and didn't tell anybody. So there's only one, of, uh, there's only one reason. Uh, well, excuse me. There's a couple of reasons that that could happen. One, he didn't think he'd end up in the hospital for a long period of time. He miscalculated. That's a judgment call. Once he found out he was going to the hospital, the very first thing out of his mouth should have been, you better let the president know so that somebody can take over for me while I'm incapacitated. So either it was total incompetence, it was accidental and then not fixed, or it was purposeful. Because the Biden administration is being uh, constantly, constantly reviewed for their incompetence, the way they do things, their policy. And the last thing I guess they wanted to say was that the, you know, the Secretary of Defense was incapacitated. 
because that would start some bad news stories or something. I don't know exactly what it would do, but the bottom line is they didn't tell us, the American people. They didn't prepare us. They left us in the lurch, right? If an attack had taken place, what if there was a terrorist incident in this country that we weren't prepared for? What if uh, there was a foreign nation who did something, right? We, weren't, we were not prepared. So I think that's, that's a, a lack of trust between us all. All right, the next thing I, I want to take a look at uh, when it comes to the school shooting situation. See, I'm going, I'm, I just want to stay in this area of kind of things that are going on right now. And in 2021, in Oxford High School, um, a kid named Ethan Crumbly went in and killed a bunch of his classmates. He had been in a meeting with the principal, and apparently he had the gun in his backpack, and nobody knew it. They called his parents in, and after a conversation with the parents, they sent him back into the school. Go ahead. His parents left and went home, and then he attacked, and he killed a bunch of his classmates. Absolutely a horrific situation. Now, we can all look in hindsight and say, what should they have done better? Well, should they have searched his backpack? Well, that would depend on what he was in the office for. If he was in the office for saying uh, rude things or inappropriate things in class that didn't have anything to do with violence, you know, why would you search his backpack? Now, I'm not making excuses for any of the, the school people or the parents or the kid. I'm not making any excuses for any of them because you can't make excuses for people. There are people that do bad things. This kid did a bad thing. His parents... I, that's that's what I'm. That's the point of what I'm trying to bring up here. I'm not making excuses for anybody. I'm trying to look at this clearly and see what we can learn from it because that's that's all we can do. We can't go back and fix it. The children who were killed were killed. The kid who did it did it, and he's off to prison. And his parents have been charged, which is unique and different than most of these cases. And that's really what I wanted to to discuss. But we we can only learn from these incidents. We can try and prevent them. There are lots of things we can do to prevent them, which we don't do. Like I said, mental health is not something we deal with very well in our country. We don't deal with it very well in preparing ourselves. I can tell you right now, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of schools out there that do very little in the way of preparation or assessments or whatever, because they don't have money. And I understand that, but that's that's not a reason. There's grant money out there or whatever. So when it looks at this 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 crumbly kid, and, you know, that's his last name, Ethan Crumbly and his parents. Um, they have been charged. The parents have been charged with four counts of um, manslaughter because of the children that were killed. They were saying that the parents didn't do the right thing. They should have known he had a gun. They should have done this, that, and the other thing. The school's being sued because they sent the kid back. And that's what I'm trying to say. Why would they have searched his backpack if he had made threats? If they, someone had said he's dealing drugs, anything like that, where the backpack would become an essential element to whatever he was doing, then of course you search the backpack. You search the locker. Uh, the police should go to the house and search the kid's house. Did he write a kill list? Anything like that. You do a thorough and complete investigation. That morning, when the parents were called in for whatever the problem was, they had no way of thinking or knowing that this kid was going to shoot up the school. Neither did the school. The school sent him with his backpack back into the building. So either they were totally incompetent or they just didn't think that that was going to happen and then it took off. So the question being, when it comes to responsibility, are these parents responsible for what this kid did? 
Now, we break that down, right? We're investigators here. That's what we do here. We're, we're going to ask questions and investigate. If the kid had made threatening statements about hurting other people, then the parents should have been on notice that, uh-oh, my kid's making threats about hurting people. I should search his bedroom. I should search his backpack. I should look everywhere to find out if my kid has weapons. Uh, I should involve the police if he's made threats to find out if he has weapons or whatever. If the school said the kid's been making threats on people, they should have searched the backpack. They should have searched the locker, all of that. So I think we can look at each case individually. If the parents knew this kid had been making threats and he had access to weapons, then I'd say yes. They not only had poor parenting, but they left everyone uh, in danger by not taking further action. And then charges on them may be appropriate. If parents had no idea what the kid was up to uh, and, and he had made no indications that he was going to hurt people, that's like if, you're, if your wife went out and decided to um, go out with her, her girlfriends and have too many glasses of wine one day and come home and run somebody over with the car. Should you be locked up because the car's in your name? You should have known she might have done? No, unless your wife was an alcoholic who drank all the time and had accidents and she was driving your car, what are you going to do about it? You didn't know that. It was a happenstance. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's very bad. But how do we, how do we rope other people into responsibility? And I am not opposed to that as an investigator. And that's why I'm saying we look individually at each case. So if these parents had no idea and the kid went and did this, uh, that's, a, that's a bad kid who did a bad thing. And the parents didn't know. Are they responsible? So the reason that that caught my attention is because I recently saw a, a program. I'm trying to think of what it's called. Uh, I think it's on Hulu. I think I saw it on Hulu. And it was the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the original school shooters, uh, Eric Klebold. And she did this special. And basically, uh, she was part of a documentary. That's what it was. It was a documentary. Uh, about what had happened to her, her son, her family, and the Columbine schools. How did, how did that happen? And the central question in that was, how could this monster, this Dylan Klebold monster who killed all of these classmates like that, how could it have been prevented? What did the parents know? What should the parents have known? before he went into that school and killed everybody. And the case that they make in the documentary, and again, you have to look at the bias of who the documentary maker was. Are they feeling um, that they are, uh, they're, they're trying to help out the parents. Maybe they're sympathetic to the, to the Klebolds. I don't know, but I watched it for insight. Now it's been many years. It's been many years since uh, that day in uh, 1999 when uh, Harris and Klebold went in and killed all those young people and teachers in uh, Columbine High School. And the mother has had lots of life go on between then. Uh, apparently, there was a younger brother uh, that was there, and they didn't really tell us about the younger brother. The husband, who was there in the pictures, the, you know, the videos they had of the thing at the time, uh, he wasn't part of the, the process. So maybe, I don't know if he had passed away or if you know, he moved on. I don't know. Uh, but what I did get, that I did gather from it, and again, keeping in mind, it could be biased. So the, the information they present, the way they present it, can certainly be uh, slanted one way or another. Was that this woman had no idea 
of the evil that was lurking in her son's life. She had no idea what was going on with him. She thought he was a, uh, a uh, just a normal, regular kid. He, he grew up as a normal, regular kid. He had friends. He wasn't bullied. You know, this whole mafia trench coat thing was was not exactly what was going on at the time. That was all hype from the media. But the reality was, as she talks about him, he was a normal, regular kid. Now, when he got to be, I don't know, I guess he was 16 or 17 when he did the shootings. When he got to be about 14 or 15, he had a couple of run-ins. He did some criminal mischief. Um, him and his friend, they stole some stuff out of a truck on the side of the road, you know, a, a, a rural area where they lived. They were experimenting with fireworks and all that kind of stuff. And the parents didn't know that. That was one of the things that they brought up. Your kid was making bombs in the basement and you didn't know it. Well, let me ask you, how many of you have teenagers, older teenagers, and you're up on them every single minute? You're, you're going through their room when they're not home. You're looking through their journals. You're keeping up on their Facebook pages. Is anybody actually doing that? Now, as a law enforcement officer uh, with teenage boys and a teenage daughter, I have to admit, I did do some of that. Not that I didn't trust my kids. I trust them implicitly. And they were all very, very good kids. They never demonstrated anything that would give me an indication that they were involved with drugs or weapons or they were doing illegal things or whatever. But just as a parent, having dealt with people as a law enforcement officer, I had seen things like this, kids doing things the parents had no idea about. So I always wanted to make sure that, uh, not that, uh, how do I put it? I didn't want my kids to get involved in something that they had no idea the ramifications of. So yes, did I go search their rooms when they weren't home? Yes. Did I look through their backpacks? Yes, I did. Uh, did I look at their journals? Yes, I did. Oh my gosh, Lieutenant Joe, you violated their trust. No, I was parenting them. And people can disagree, but you know what? My job is to parent and make sure they're okay. Um, so that's what I did. But in this, in this documentary about Mrs. Klebold, she was making the case that she had no idea. It wasn't until after the attacks had taken place that she saw his writings and she got to see the videos that he had made with uh, the other kid. And she saw a person that she says, that was not my son. I don't know who that was. I don't know who that person was that he turned into or for whatever reason he turned into that person. And I have to say that if you look, um, look at anything, any human endeavor, we can say that things like that do take place, don't they? Somebody does something totally out of character. People have secret lives. Uh, people have uh, things going on that they, they, want to, they want to keep secret from other people, their family, their friends whether it's uh, some kind of a deviancy or a, a relationship they shouldn't have or a gambling problem or a drinking problem. You know, people keep things to themselves and we don't always know if we're not expecting it. You know, once somebody gives us some indication that maybe there's a problem, you're going to look closer, right? So if your spouse uh, has an affair behind your back and you don't know anything about it and you find out and you work that out, you're going to be a little suspicious in the future, right? When they're talking quietly on their phone, when they go outside all the time to talk on the phone, when they're coming home late from work with no, no excuse, you're going to be, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because you'll have some experience with that situation. All right, so it's an interesting thing for anyone out there in security or law enforcement, uh, even my psychologist friends, um, the psychologist that dealt with Klebold was on there. Uh, prior, of course, prior to him doing what he did and then killing himself, I suggest you go watch it. Um, it was it was very interesting to see 
the background of such a thing. Now, when we look at um, this kid in Oxford, Michigan, and his parents, you know, did they know? Did they have indications that there could have been a problem where, therefore, they should have done something? You know, what about all the other crime that goes on in our society? Let's, and this is, this is where I want to juxtapose this with, you know, in our society, how many kids do we see when we see somebody pushes somebody into a subway car or they rob somebody and beat them to death or they rape somebody and we find out that this young person, 15, 16, 17 years old, has been arrested 35 times. They've been arrested with weapons multiple times. They've assaulted other people multiple times. And then they go and they kill somebody. Did they go back and lock up the parents and say, your kid was out of control and you knew it. You had all these indicators and you didn't check the kid's room for a weapon. You didn't check the kid before he left. You didn't watch out for her before she did A, B, C, and D, right? Do we do that in any other part of society? And should we? You know, there's a push on now that we should. We should do such things. We should hold parents accountable for the behavior of their children. The whole idea being, if you are responsible, if your kid does something bad, if you're going to be criminally and civilly responsible for that, then maybe you're going to pay more attention to the kid and you'll intervene or you'll find ways to prevent uh, the child from hurting other people, killing other people, raping other people, right? So I found that as we go forward, something we really do need to consider and, and think about. Because like I said, I'm not opposed to holding parents accountable when they have knowledge that the child is in, in danger of hurting themselves or somebody else and they do nothing. The other thing that came out of the Klebold uh, documentary was that the psychologist said something that's very interesting. We know that in many of these school shooters, they are ended either when law enforcement or armed security apply force to the shooter and kill them, or the killer shoots and kills themselves, which is, it's about 50-50, not exactly 50-50, but it's about 50-50. Half the time they kill themselves, half the time they're taken out. Very small percentage do they drop their weapon and run or whatever. So what the psychologist had said is that we know that suicide is a part of this. And the way he broke it down, he said, not every suicidal person will be an active shooter, but that they find that most active shooters have suicidal tendencies. So that's another area of health care and mental health that we have to address in our society. You know, uh, young people are killing themselves more than they ever have. And of course, this is into adult world as well. So this is something we all need to think about and figure out what are we going to do going forward? How do we handle the mental health problem, the violence problem, and try and do some prevention to save lives? We'll be back in a minute with more Chasing Justice. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high-stress, on-the-go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart-healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health, cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides, with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. 
And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great-tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Changing the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Well, it does end after, you know, a period of time, but, you know, we come back, we come back, and we come back. So we're here today, and, and I know this is, a, this is a lot of different information. Normally, you know, people who listen here to Chasing Justice know I like to focus on a topic, but sometimes there's just a lot of things going on in my head that I want to talk about, and uh, as we go forward, I'm sure we'll have more programs like that. Uh, I know we, we had recently, we talked about servant leadership, and I talked about it a little bit today because I think it's an important topic. Uh, I'm also going to talk about uh, two case studies of, of two individuals that were servant leaders. I'm going to talk about that today because I find them very interesting. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about some other things going on in the world. So uh, air flight, who flies, who flies on airplanes? Right? Well, you want to make sure you fly on an airplane and you want to get to where you're going. It's a very, very safe form of travel. Uh, recently, my son Jack had to fly to a conference. And unfortunately, the poor kid got sick. Uh, he stayed in a hotel the night before to be close to the airport. We called him at 3 o'clock in the morning to make sure he was up, you know, college kid, make sure he's up uh, so we can get to the airport. He was only five minutes away from the airport, but he was up and he says, yeah, I got it. Man, my stomach don't feel right, but I guess I'm okay. Well, he had to take a, a flight to Chicago and then from Chicago, he had to go to St. Louis. And in the middle of the, I guess the middle of the flight, he calls us and says, man, I really don't feel well. I got sick in the airport and you know it turns out he had food poisoning 
uh, on his way to the airport, he stopped at a local fast food place and he got himself a bad sandwich. Uh, but the poor kid had a fly and he didn't feel well. So when I think about feeling well, I think about staying healthy. Now, there's nothing he could have done about that other than not buy the sandwich there. But in general, we've seen a lot of people sick recently, haven't we? We're seeing this RSV is out there. The new COVID is out there. Flu is out there. It's just that, this, that time of year. It's, it's really a crappy time to, to be out there. You get sick. I have not been that sick in the past couple of years. Normally, I've told you I get sinus infections because I've been taking the healthy cell products, the immune boost. It's actually really very good. It's been great for me. I, I can't say enough about it. It's really excellent. So if you're looking to help yourself through, you know, the tough months of sickness, take a look at uh, Immune Boost from the uh, Healthy Cell Company. They also have a sleep product to help you sleep if you're having trouble there. And they also have things to help you uh, think more clearly, right? And we can all use some of that sometimes. All right, so Air Flight. See how I knit that together? Put all these things together, right? Trying to you know, make it make it relevant for everybody. We recently saw on Alaska Airlines, a door blew out of the airplane at 16,000 feet. Now I fly a lot, right? A lot of my business takes me around the country and I, and I fly a lot and I'm a big fan of flight. I love air flight and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, my kids bought me uh, flying lessons that I, I have to take as soon as the weather gets nice around here. Uh, but you know, I look at the airplane, I look at the windows, and every once in a while you see condensation inside the window, or you look around and, you know, the airplane. you got to realize these airplanes, when they, when they take off uh, and they pressurize, it's like the pressurization inside pushes the walls of the airplane out, and then when you land, it depressurizes and it goes down. And that, that happens thousands and thousands of times in the life of an aircraft. And I know one of the inspections that they do is they do a, I'm trying to think of what it's called. They have a special scope that can see like really tiny cracks in the fuselage, these aluminum fuselage that they, that they use. Because that expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting can cause metal fatigue is what they call it. And you can have a catastrophic event, right? Now, most, most of the airlines have newer planes and this and that, but I'm telling you, this points out, uh, this was a specific plane. I believe, I know it's a Boeing 837-9, 837 Series 9, whatever it is. So they've, uh, you've seen a lot of airlines that still fly those, have pulled them all out, and they're going to do inspections because they found that this door, door window thing blew out in the airplane while people were, you know, were on 16,000 feet is pretty high up. You know, it's pretty high up. Uh, it could have caused a catastrophic problem had it taken out a piece of the, another piece of the fuselage other than just the door you know the emergency door uh, apparently that blew off got sucked out uh, we're told that uh, it did suck out some insulation from the walls because when you depressurize that quick that's when you see in tv you know you got a bad guy in a plane back in the day when they didn't check people and they shoot a, shoot one of the windows and you know even even a big large person would get sucked right out that window uh, and i guess there there is some truth to that um, but in this case they were very, very lucky, and they managed to get the airplane on the ground. But now they've grounded those planes all across the world. I think they said there's 170 or something of them in circulation right now, and they're checking them. But it's, it's a good reminder that these things can happen. I remember years ago, uh, an Aloha Air airplane was flying, uh, I guess, from Los Angeles or somewhere on the continental United States to Hawaii. And there was a fuselage catastrophe, and the roof 
actually ripped off at flight. They were up at, at 35,000 feet or whatever. The roof ripped off and a stewardess who was standing there doing her job, a uh, flight attendant was doing her job, got sucked right out of the airplane and you know, the poor thing lost her life in that incident. They never found her body. They were over the Pacific um, going 500 miles an hour. But it just reminds you that you know you never know you never know what's going to happen to you, but that's been in the news. And anybody who flies a lot, you know, I, I often look around. You know, I look at the condition of the airplane when it's sitting there uh, on the tarmac before they load you up. I go out and I look. Do I see anything obvious? You know, on the Internet, you can go and find videos of, uh, of a jet engine that exploded. And people are videoing with their phone. And there's the engine, you know, burning up or whatever. And, and they're, they're trying to trying to land this plane and get to safety. It is very, very few and far between. Air flight is actually one of the safest modes of travel that there is, but I just wanted to, to talk about that because I thought that was um, really amazing uh, that nothing worse happened to those people. All right, so that's my round the world. Now, when I talked about servant leadership in an episode or so ago, what I was trying to portray was that my understanding of servant leadership is boiled down to a phrase. The higher you go in any organization, the more you owe those below you, right? So if you are the chief executive officer of a company, you owe all of your employees your time, your dedication, your concern about them to make sure that they have the equipment they need, the training they need, they have the support and resources that they need, that they're taken care of properly, uh, they're valued, they're helped to learn to be better because you want your people to be better and better and better and better. That's really the whole idea. So that that concept of servant leadership, I teach a class on leadership and it's I started it for law enforcement, but I do it for any group now, any group that wants to talk about leadership because every organization has leaders, right? And they all have leaders. And one of the best ways to talk about that is to understand how, the per how, how your head works, how your brain works when it comes to leadership. And giving examples of other people who have been in difficult situations and had to make difficult choices as a leader kind of points out some things for us that maybe when we're in a difficult situation as a leader, we can draw on some knowledge from these people. So when I, I'm, a, I'm a history guy. I like history. I, I learn from history. I learn to learn what other people did back in the day. And like I said, because it can help you learn. So one of the stories that I tell uh, is about a Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Colonel Joshua Chamberlain from the United States Civil War, right, back in the 1860s. One of the things that had been done was that you, you had this civil war take place. The South breaks away. Abraham Lincoln decides he's not going to allow that that the union must stay together and we end up in a hot civil war. Brother versus brother, cousin versus cousin, fighting each other in the North and the South and many, many, many thousands of people uh, died. I just watched a special the other day. Say, they said it's been reported that 550,000 people died during that war, but the actual numbers could be as high as 850,000. That's almost a million Americans who died in that conflict. So the, the lessons and the stories that come out of it are never ending. If you ever have a chance to go uh, to the battlefields, a Civil War battlefield, and walk around, it's really, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, I went to Gettysburg. Uh, my son Joseph was looking at colleges. Uh, me, him, and my son Jack, I'm sorry, my son Alex and I and Joe went to look uh, at Gettysburg University. It's one of the places we looked at. And while we were there, 
we got to go to the battlefield and see where this actually took place. So when I heard the story of Colonel Chamberlain having actually walked on the battlefield, seen the buildings that are still there, that were there at the time, to actually see the land, the ridge, the different places kind of brought the story to life for me. So that's why I use it in my class. So in essence, Colonel Chamberlain was uh, an individual from Maine, the state of Maine. And he was uh, a colonel and he was in charge of several Maine divisions in the Civil War. And the way things worked back then, the Union Army was uh, an army that you could sign up for. It wasn't it wasn't many men. You weren't just people running around with, uh, with weapons from their farm fighting against bad people. They were a regular army. We had the Union Army. And people would sign up. And I, I believe it was a two-year a two-year sign-up. You signed up for two years. It might have been four, but let's just say two for the story. And you signed up for your two years, and you went and did your military service. And if you were at a time of war, well, you went to war. Well, the Civil War took place, and the, the men who were signed up went to war. And we, we know lots of them were maimed and killed and, and injured and all that in the fight for freedom to maintain the Union. Well, as the, the Battle of Gettysburg was drawing, drawing up, it was happening, they were bringing troops in from all over the place because the, the, the Battle of Gettysburg was a pivotal moment in that Civil War. As it's been explained to me, if the Union lost at the Battle of Gettysburg then the South probably would have went on to win the war and the country would have split into two, the Northern United States and the Southern United States, the Confederacy and the, uh, and the Union. And that would have been a devastation to the world. It would have been very difficult. So the, the stakes could not have been higher. Well, Colonel Chamberlain is there with the men from, I believe it was the second Maine. You know, there's different divisions. I don't pretend to know all the divisions, but I believe he was there with the second Maine division. And he had fought battles all across uh, the United States and lost a lot of his men. And he was down to about 220 men in his division. He was also tasked with maintaining and keeping track of uh, about 120 soldiers from the 10th Maine Division. And I'm going to give him that name. I don't have the exact name of what division they were. But they had been enlisted. Uh, their time was up. They had fought in the battles. They had seen their friends die. And their time was up. Their, their time of service was over. And they wanted to go home to their families. Well, this battle of Gettysburg was so important that the leadership of the military and the country basically told everybody, well, you can't go home. Even if your time is up, you're going to fight. Uh, and that's all there is to it. And so Colonel Chamberlain is here preparing to be a part of this battle, this battle of Gettysburg, which could change the history of the country and the world, really, if you look at it. He had 220 of his own men and 120 men from the 10th Maine who were done. They wanted to go home. And he was given instructions. If any of the men don't want to fight, he could execute them if they tried to leave. Now, think about that. You're the leader. And this is the, this is the value of a story like this. You put yourself in the position of the leader. Uh, you're a good, decent person. You're fighting for what you believe is a good cause. You're in charge of people. And you have a group of, of your personnel who are ready to go. It's part of their, their, their experience. You know, they're there. They're, they're signed up. They're going to be there and they're going to fight, whatever, however it comes out. And then you have this other group of men 
who have already done their time, and it's their time to go home, go home with their arms and legs, go home alive, go home see their families that they haven't seen. And he gets this order, these men either fight with you or you can execute them. So that's the dilemma uh, that, that uh, Colonel Chamberlain has. Well, the way the battle was going to start up is that the, the, the Union took the high ridge and the Southern Army was going to come across the battlefield and try and split the army, fight them, beat them down, and win at the Battle of, of Gettysburg. Now, for all you Gettysburg experts out there, if I get something a, a little bit wrong, I'm really sorry. I apologize. I'm not claiming to be a Gettysburg expert. This is the story of Chamberlain that I know, and this is, this is what I use. So before this battle takes place, Colonel Chamberlain has to decide what he's going to do with these 120 men. He can execute them, or he can try and convince them to fight with the Union Army. Now, what he'll tell you uh, in all the writings about this is that there was no way he was going to execute these men. He just wasn't going to do it. These were his, his own people from Maine, and they're on his army. He's, they're part of his side, you know, the Union Army. He was not going to execute them, but what was he going to do? So if you think about 120 people who don't want to be there no more and they could take off, you have to guard them. And that's what he told them. He gathered them all together and he said, listen, here's the deal. This is a very, very important battle. Everything we have fought, all the sacrifice we've made up to this point could come down to this battle. And I've been told that you cannot leave, that you are to fight. And if you're not going to fight, I can execute you. Now, of course, you could imagine that caused quite a stir amongst these men who had done their time and were ready to go home. But he told them right off the bat, he says, I'm not going to kill you. Someone else might, but I'm not going to. Then he had a choice to make as the leader. How does he get these men to agree to join him and fight when it's probably a, like a suicidal kind of a mission, right? You got all these troops. And that's exactly what he did. He spoke to their hearts. He talked to them about all the sacrifice they had already made, the difficulties that they had all faced, and how they did this originally. The reason, the reason that they were fighting this battle, it was for a greater good than themselves. So he painted a picture. He was a visionary of painting a picture for them to get buy-in. Now, buy-in is a concept where all leaders understand you have a new policy or you have a new protocol or something you want your people to do. You can just tell them you're going to do it and too bad. Or you can explain it to them and get buy-in so that they want to do it. And so as a servant leader, he understood, okay, I have options here. What am I going to do? So that's exactly what Colonel Chamberlain did. He explained to the men that I know you've done your time and I know it's time for you to go home, but we need you. Everything you've done, all the people you've lost, all the sacrifices that we've made will be worth nothing if we lose this battle. So I'm not going to shoot you but you have to stay, you're not leaving. And they took a vote and the men there decided that they would fight, right? Absolutely amazing. So that was, I think he took a very good tack there to get buy-in by talking to their hearts, right? Because that's how we influence people. We talk to the hearts and minds. Uh, anybody can hold a sword over somebody's head and say, do it to get them to do something. But to get them to buy in, to be, to be brave when they're not brave, to sacrifice when they don't have to sacrifice. To do that, a leader has to paint a picture and be a visionary, and that's what Colonel Chamberlain did. Well, the way that battle shaped up is he had his 330 total men at the top of the ridge. And I believe if you're looking at the ridge from down below, he was on the right-hand side. And then you had a, a, another group of uh, Union soldiers in the middle and then some on the far left flank. 
down below, there were some 5,000 battle-hardened Southern soldiers. Now, that's a a huge number, 5,000 battle-hardened soldiers. And they had seen fighting. They had lost people, but they were geared up to win. They, They knew that this might be the win for them that they had been fighting for. And they're at the bottom of the hill. So strategically, militarily, and I'm not a military person, but from what I understand, the high ground is the best, would seem to make sense to me. Uh, people running up have, have a disadvantage. So that was one of the, the things that they had an advantage of, the Union Army. They were at the top of the ridge. But there was only 330 of them. And down below, the, the Southern Army was 5,000 troops ready to go. Well, the battle began, and the Southern Confederate Army tried to get up the hill, uh, I think, on their third try. You know, they, they had a big rush. They went up, and they were fought back. The Union fought them back down. They tried a second time and a third time, and they were gearing up to go up again. And Colonel Chamberlain had another huge dilemma on his hands. He had these 330 men. Some of them had been lost in the initial couple skirmishes, but they were almost out of ammunition. They almost had no ammunition left, and all they had was bayonets. And the reality was the Southern Army was going to try and punch through where Colonel Chamberlain was, split the army, and then be able to defeat the the Union army and win the battle, basically the bottom line. So Chamberlain knew that if he allowed that to happen, that if they allowed the the Confederates to beat them, it could be the end of the the United States of America and it would be two countries. So basically he called these people together again and he said, listen, we've come this far We have got to fight as hard as we possibly can. So what we're going to do is we're going to fix our bayonets on our rifles. And when the southern troops start coming up the hill, we are going to run down the hill and swing from left to right and try and push them into the middle where there are more soldiers that have more, uh, more Union soldiers that have more ammunition, more, more people and, and could, you know, battle them. This is a suicide mission. You have basically bayonets against men who have uh, guns with weapons, with, uh, with ammunition, and they have hatchets and all the, the encumberments of, of war. And he convinced them that that's the thing to do. And these men lined up, they prepared, and when the moment was right, he gave the order and they swung down the hill. And they pushed the southern Confederate soldiers into the middle where they were ultimately defeated. And the long part of the story is that the Union was saved at that that day at the battle because of the incredible bravery of those men and of the incredible leadership of Colonel Chamberlain. And when you think about that, uh, you say to yourself, well, where where did he lead from? Where did Chamberlain lead? Did he tell them what to do? We're going to run down there in a suicide mission because it's the right thing to do. Put on your bayonets. And when I say go, you go. No, like a true servant leader, he led from the front. Uh, When he called the troops to go, he led the way down He was part of the battle, and he showed amazing uh, courage and determination to do what was right, what he said he was going to do, what he wanted others to do. He did it himself, which is really an absolutely amazing thing. So I tell that story of Colonel Chamberlain, and then I ask, I say, could you be a Colonel Chamberlain? If you were in a position to have to make decisions for a group of people, could you make the right decision, first of all? the appropriate decision, 
Uh, and then could you lead properly? If you had to convince people to do something, could you do it? Or would you just tell? Right? So you can just tell. When you're a leader, you can just tell. But that doesn't always help, does it? No. It's much better to convince people to do the right thing. And that's why I always liked Colonel Chamberlain. I like that story. I find him to be a great leader, and I take a lot of a lot of lessons from that. I've been in positions where I've had to tell people to do things that they didn't want to do, and I tried to convince them using a vision of why we're doing this, why this policy is important, why this action we have to do is important, and then we go and do it. And that's, that's what Chamberlain did. So you want to look him up. He excellent Excellent story. If you go to the Civil War Museum in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in that area, you can actually see his top hat. Uh, I was there visiting, and I wanted to put it on, and the security guard wouldn't let me. He says, no, sir, you can't put on the historic piece of headgear. I said, but, you know, he's an amazing man. He means a lot to me. I'd like to wear his hat. And they, they wouldn't let me do it, so that's interesting. All right, the next one I'm going to tell you a little quicker because we're almost out of time here. Imagine, see how fast this time goes? The second story I tell um, is of a Captain Donald Brooks in Vietnam. Now, if you remember, Vietnam was a very difficult time for America. The, the troops were over there fighting and dying. It wasn't a popular war. People here were, were fighting against it. There was a lot of uh, protests. Uh, soldiers were called baby killers. It was, it was really a, a terrible, terrible time for our military people. And imagine, you know, at the time you're in a jungle in the middle of nowhere, and you knew that people at home were not in favor of what you were doing. And that makes the work even more difficult when you could die for the work, that people are not appreciative of it. Well, this Captain Donald Brooks was scheduled to take over a fire base in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and basically, it was a group of soldiers out in the middle of the jungles of nowhere in Vietnam. And the guy who was the leader, the captain who was the leader at the time, was a very by-the-book kind of guy. He followed every rule. He followed every rule. He, didn't, he was worried about his career. You know, uh, these the, the soldiers used to get these sores on their bodies from the humidity and the heat. And the only thing that would help them to get rid of these sores was that they had to have sunlight on them or uh, maybe salt water, uh, fresh air and things like that. Well, this guy, this leader, uh, he was always afraid that, you know, some general might fly into his nowhere base and see that the men were not fully dressed with their full uniforms on. So he wouldn't let them wear short sleeves or, or cut their pants down. So they were suffering with these sores. And Captain Brooks knew about this. He had gotten information about the leader, the way he was, the men, and what was going on, the conditions. So he flies in, and he has a couple of choices to make. Uh, he could be a leader like the other guy and worry about his career, what's important to him, or he could think about the men in his command and what they needed. Now, I have to tell you that uh, when, when I tell this story, not a lot of young people today understand about Vietnam. So if you were around at the time, you saw the protests, you saw what happened. It was very tough. But what did Captain Brooks do? He lands. He exchanges command with the tough guy. Tough guy flies off. And now here's Captain Brooks at this firebase in the middle of nowhere. And basically, he calls the troops together. He introduces himself, tells them, you know, gives them the scuttlebutt on what's going to be going on. And the first thing he says is, I hear you have these sores, and these are very uncomfortable. I want you to take those jackets off. Cut down your pants. I want you to get out in the sunshine. Let's let's get these things cleared up. And the the soldiers were overjoyed 
at this. Now, it seems like a simple thing, but you know, you and I don't have sores on our bodies from humidity and heat, and we're not allowed to do anything to, to make them better. So that's the first thing he did when he got there, is that he told him, take those jackets off, get the sunshine on there, fresh air, cut those pants down, let's get you comfortable and healthy, because you're fighting for your country, right? Very serious thing. And it was very well taken by the soldiers. Matter of fact, I saw a special maybe in 2010 about Vietnam, and there was a group of soldiers who had served with Captain Donald Brooks, and they were talking about him, and th while this specific story didn't come up, what they said was that's the kind of guy he was, and they all said they would go through fire for Captain Brooks, that they would do anything for this man because he was such a great leader for them in their time of, of difficulty. They're in the middle of a jungle, dying for what purpose? People at home didn't didn't care about it, thought they were bad. And this guy came along and was a great leader and he transformed their lives in the place that they were. So he's a, another great leader. And that's why I tell those two stories in my class because, you know, Captain Brooks wasn't worried about his own career. He was worried about the men in his command and what was good for them. And that made him a servant leader. He took care of their needs and not his own career. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of your career, but when you have people who report to you, what you're responsible for, you have to do what they need, not just what they want, what they need. And that's what Captain Brooks did. And I, I find him and Colonel Chamberlain to be great examples of great leaders. Now, going forward in our country, we need great leaders, don't we? Imagine if we had a Colonel Chamberlain or a Captain Brooks now leading us. All right, my friends. Listen, this was a good get-together. We have more to come. This is going to be a great year for everybody. I want to thank you and say, remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice. Have a great day, everybody.